are both graduating this year, um, and we're so thrilled that you're all here at the multi-religious commencement service for the class of 2016. And in a few minutes, the class of 2016 is going to process into the building through those doors, and we would like to welcome them with song. So Casper and I are here to teach you a little processional. It's called Enter, Rejoice, and Come In. Now, some of you love to sing, which is great. And some of you may be a little anxious about singing, which is also fine. So what I'd love you to do is to turn to the person next to you and say, I can't wait to hear you sing. Join me in that. I can't wait to hear you sing. I can't wait to hear you sing. So well done, everyone. Well done. <laughs> now that we're all ready to sing, Harry, would you give us a, a C? Enter, rejoice, and come in. Enter, rejoice, and come in. Today will be a joyful day. Enter, rejoice, and come in. That's the whole song. So it's really very easy. And we'll do it line by line so everyone knows it off by heart. So the first line is, Enter, rejoice, and come in. Try that all together. Enter, rejoice, and come in. Enter, rejoice, and come in. All of you. Enter, rejoice, and come in. It can be a little louder. Yeah, some enthusiasm. A little louder, everyone. Enter, rejoice, and come in. Much better. Today will be a joyful day. Once more. Today will be a joyful day. Enter, rejoice, and come in. Enter, rejoice, and come in. And now, as if you're rejoicing, all of that together. Enter, rejoice, and come in. Enter, rejoice, and come in. Today will be a joyful day. Enter, rejoice, and come in. Love. Splendid. So you will hear the choir start that as the students process in, and you are so welcome to sing along as loud as you can. Thank you. And the good news that we didn't tell you is that this is printed in your program, and there are, in fact, five verses. We'll be singing all of them, and probably many times as the students process in. So the first one you just learned, and the rest you can read off. Thank you very Thank much. You. I hope you enjoy the service.
Please be seated. So, on behalf of the whole HDS faculty, it's my great pleasure to welcome all our graduating students and you, their family members and friends, bankrupted ones. Many of you have traveled from all over the United States and from distant parts of the world, and others of you have achieved even more difficult task of finding a parking spot in Cambridge. Please allow me to be the first to congratulate those of you who will graduate tomorrow. Congratulations. We, your faculty members, are extremely proud of you and all that you've accomplished during your years with us. And we're very much look forward to watching and benefiting from the work you will do in the world after you leave us. Following the conferral of degrees by Harvard University's President Drew Faust out here in Tercentenary Theatre in the morning, we'll gather under the tent in the Harvard Divinity School campus green tomorrow afternoon to award your diplomas. But before all that happens, we are gathering with you this afternoon for this one last service of prayer, meditation, and above all, thanksgiving. And one last address from one of our own faculty, Professor Kimberly Patton, Professor of the Comparative and Historical study of religion. I'm, now, I'm delighted that in true HDS fashion, we're coming together today across the many spiritual and religious traditions represented in this wonderful graduating class. This service will not look like any liturgy or ritual that many of you have experienced before. Rather, it will look and feel spiritually like the class that is before us today, varied, eclectic, vibrant, and decidedly diverse. Thank you for helping us to commence our commencement exercises together in a spirit of gratitude, joy, and unity. And when we're done here today, after the class photo on the steps outside the building, we'll continue the celebration with a reception and communal gathering under the tent on the HDS campus green. So please come and join us after the service. As I am fond of saying, and the faculty probably fed up with me saying, the last chapter of my favorite novel, George Eliot's Middlemarch, opens with this great sentence, as the novelist in the best Victorian tradition bids farewell to her own invented characters, as if they were real people she had just come to know. She writes, every limit is a beginning as well as an ending. Who can quit young lives after being so long in their company and not desire to know what will befall them in their after years? I feel the same way about all of you, our students, and I'm very confident that whatever will, bef will befall this talented, inspirational graduating class, that you will have the effect of making the world a better place. My confidence comes not only from my knowledge of your characters and the compassionate and diverse community that you've created at HDS these past years, but also from the example of your predecessors at HDS graduates. Nothing has given me greater pleasure in my years as dean as getting to know our graduates all over the country and all around the world whose diffusive impact for the greater good is truly incalculable. May you too join in what George Eliot has called, quote, deeds of daring rectitude and in scorn for miserable aims that end only with self. Of all the graduating classes around Harvard this year, I have special confidence in this class 
all of you, that you will be contributing to daring rectitude in a world that sorely needs it. I have to say that I'm a sucker for commencement addresses, even though I think most of them are absolutely terrible. <laughs> they tend to go in phases. First, there was the shoot for the stars phase. Then there was the be true to yourself phase. The most recent phase is to celebrate one's failures, where incredibly successful people tell us how their small-scale failures did not get in the way of their mega-successful lives. <laughs> well, thanks. For some of us, failure took a lot of hard work and investment, and we don't want to trivialize by hyper-successful people. Just saying. It has always struck me as odd that anyone feels disposed to give advice to countless numbers of students, most of whom are more talented and more together as people than oneself. The Irish seem to get this more than most, uh, which is my, my, why my favorite two statements on giving advice are from my fellow Irishman, Oscar Wilde. The first is, quote, the only thing to do with good advice is pass it on. It's never any use to oneself. And the second is, it's always a silly thing to give advice, but to give good advice is absolutely fatal. <laughs> In that spirit, I have very little to offer by way of advice. But every year, there is a commencement address that kind of breaks the mold and seems to carry an unusual charge of authenticity and humanity. I think of Steve Jobs at Stanford and J.K. Rowling at Harvard and hopefully Steven Spielberg tomorrow. This year's prize for me goes to the unlikely Sheryl Sandberg, the CEO of Facebook, which my children absolutely forbid, forbid me to use, um, for good reason, as I found out the Harambee service this morning, all of you at the Harambee service. We have a Facebook stalker in our midst. Um, 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 anyway, so my children, uh, my children forbid me to go on fa Facebook, which they think could get me fired, um, which sometimes I find a very attractive idea. But, um, but back to Sandberg. Um, her piece is really an, an extensive riff on what she has learned, not in life, um, but in death, the untimely death of her beloved husband, who died suddenly from a heart arrhythmia at a very early age. And she celebrates in this riff the importance of resilience in the face of adversity and counting one's blessings systematically as a way of finding joy and meaning throughout life. It's nothing less than a celebration of thanksgiving as perhaps the most healing and spiritual of all the human virtues. The raw experience of obvious grief and irreplaceable loss saves Sandberg's address from even a whiff of platitude. Her struggle for emotional survival is palpable. But she states that, quote, finding gratitude and appreciation is key to resilience. People who take the time to list the things they are grateful for are happier and healthier. So if you do get a chance to read Sandberg's creative and painful lament on Thanksgiving, please do go read it. And Thanksgiving is now what we're going to do through the remarkable talents of our HDS community. We are grateful for the lives that have been entrusted to us for only these few years, ever mindful that you're poised to carry our community values into the wider world. So welcome, everyone. Come celebrate with us. Give thanks for these beautiful and talented graduating students and the opportunities awaiting them. For tomorrow's going to be hot. Thank you.
एकंकार सतनाम करता पुरख निर्वो निर्वै अकाल मूर्त अजूनी सैभंग गुरप्रसाद जप आद सच जगात सच है भी सच नानक होसी भी सच वन यूनिवर्सल क्रिएटर गाड द नेम इज ट्रूथ क्रिएटर बींग प्रसानिफाइड नो फियर नो हेट्रेड इमेज ऑफ द अनडाइंग बियॉन्ड बर्थ सेल्फ एग्जिस्टेंट बाय गुरुज ग्रेस ट्रू इन द बिगिनिंग True throughout the ages, true here and now, O Nanak, forever and ever true. O Heavenly King, the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who are everywhere and fillest all things, treasury of blessings and giver of life, Come and abide in us, and cleanse us from every impurity, and save our souls, O good one. ശ്രീമിനുസ്മിയുസ്മിയുസ്മിയുസ്മിയുസ്മിയുസ്മിയുസ്മിയുസ്മിയുസ്മിയുസ്മിയുസ്മിയുസ്മിയുസ്മിയ
and of his signs is that he created for you from amongst yourselves partners that you may find tranquility in them and he placed between you affection and mercy. Indeed in that are signs for people who give thought. And of his signs is the creation of the heavens and the earth and the diversity of your languages and of your colors. Indeed in this are signs for those of knowledge. And of his signs is your sleep by night and day and your seeking of his bounty. Indeed in that are signs for people who listen. Meister Eckhart wrote, As thou art in church or cell, that same frame of mind carry out into the world, into its turmoil and its fitfulness. Deep within us all, there is an amazing inner sanctuary of the soul, a holy place, a divine center, a speaking voice to which we may continuously return. Eternity is at our hearts, pressing upon our time-torn lives, warming us with intimations of an astounding destiny, calling us home unto itself. Yielding to these persuasions, gladly committing ourselves in body and soul, utterly and completely, to the light within, is the beginning of true life. It is a dynamic center, a creative life that presses to birth within us. It is a light within which illumines the face of God and cases new shadows and new glories upon the face of humanity. It is a seed stirring to life if we do not choke it. It is the Shekinah of the soul, the presence in the midst. Here is the slumbering Christ, stirring to be awakened, to become the soul we clothe in earthly form and action. And Christ is within us all. You who hear these words already know this inner life and light. For by this very light within you is your recognition given. In this humanistic age, we suppose we are the initiators and God is the responder. But the living Christ within us is the initiator and we are the responders. God the lover, the accuser, the revealer of light and darkness presses within us. Behold, I stand at the door and knock and all our apparent initiative is already a response, a testimonial to Christ's secret presence and working within us. This image signifies the knowledge of God, for she oversees all people and all things in heaven and earth. And she is so bright and glorious that you cannot look at her face or her garments for the splendor with which she shines. For she is terrible with the terror of the avenging lightning and gentle with the goodness of the bright sun. And both her terror and her gentleness are incomprehensible to humans. The terror of divine brilliance in her face and the brightness of her beauty in her garments, 
as the sun cannot be looked at in its burning face or in its beautiful clothing of rays. But she is with everyone and in everyone. And so beautiful is her secret that no person can know the sweetness with which she sustains people and spares them an inscrutable mercy. Sarvasarthavahaschayayinam 
पारेपूनाभूतुसक्रम दीपाथिनाम दीप शैयाशैयाथिनाह दासनाह दासो भवीयसर्वेना चिंतामनीद्रघटा सिद्ध विद्यामषदी भवेय कल्पवृक्ष कामधेनुश्चेना पृथिव्यादीभूताशेषाकाशवासीना सत्म प्रमेयानाकनेकशनिष्ठस सत्धातरनेकधा भवेयमजीव्योहम ये नृता यथा गृहत सुगतर्बोधिचित पुरातन ते बोधिशिक्षायापूर्व्या यथास्थिता मे आई बी ए गर्ड फॉर दोस् विदउट वन a guide for all who journey on the road for all who wish to go across the water may i be a boat a raft or bridge may i be an island for those who yearn for landfall and a lamp for those who wish for light may i be a bed for those who need to rest and a servant for all who live in need may i be a wishing jewel a magic vase a word of power and good medicine may i be a tree of miracles and a cow of plenty for the world just like the great earth and the other elements such as space may i support the life of all the boundless living beings and thus for all the realms of varied beings that reach unto the ends of space may i always be the source of life until they pass away from pain Sister Carita Kent was an American Roman Catholic nun, as well as a pop artist, a contemporary of Andy Warhol. Often overlooked because of her identity as a woman and a nun, Kent's work held a special place in our hearts this year as it was displayed as part of the Harvard Art Museum's Carita Kent and the Language of Pop exhibit. Kent's work is illustrated by Love is Hard Work, uses colors and language to address what she felt were some of society's greatest injustices. Her work was deeply impacted by the Second Vatican Council of the Roman Catholic Church, which resulted in such documents as Gaudium et Spets that emphasizes that the Catholic Church has a responsibility to, quote, recognize and understand the world in which we live, its explanations, its longings, and its often dramatic characteristics. One way in which Sister Carita pursued such a task was through co-opting everyday food advertisement language, such as that of Wonder Breads, and infusing it with the meaning that helped viewers think more critically about hunger, as well as the celebration of the Eucharist, 
We see this in the work below me, that they may have life. The following reflection on bread comes from the Jesuit priest and peace activist, Daniel Berrigan, who died just weeks ago. Berrigan's words often featured prominently in Kent's work. When I hear bread breaking, I see something else. It seems almost though God never meant us to do anything else. So beautiful a sound, the crust breaks up like manna and falls over everything, and then we eat. Bread gets inside humans. Sometime in your life, hope that you might see one starved man. The look on his face when the bread finally arrives. Hope you might have baked it, or brought it, or even kneaded it for yourself. Glorious father and mother in one parent combined. Loyal would we be to your divine nature, your own self to live again in and through us by the gift and bestowal of your divine spirit, thus reproducing you imperfectly in this sphere as you are perfectly and majestically shown on high. Give us day by day your sweet ministry of brotherhood and lead us moment by moment in the pathway of loving service. Be you ever and unfailingly patient with us, even as we show forth your patience to our children. Give us the divine wisdom that does all things well, and the infinite love that is gracious to every creature. Bestow upon us your patience and loving kindness, that our charity may enfold the weak of the realm. And when our career is finished, make it an honor to your name a pleasure to your good spirit, and a satisfaction to our soul helpers. Not as we wish, our loving Father, but as you desire the eternal good of your mortal children, even so may it be. She made her way to Jesus She stumbled through the tears Then made her blind She felt such pain Some spoke in anger Her folks whispered There's no place here for your kind Still on she came through the shame that flushed her face Until at last she knelt before his feet And though she spoke no words Everything she said was heard As she poured her love for the master 
to be. I was a prisoner to the tears that had me bound. And I spent my days pouring my life without measure into this little treasure box I thought I'd found. Until the day when Jesus came to me and healed my soul with the wonder of his touch. So now I'm giving back to him all the praise he's worthy of, for I have been lifted, and that's why I love him so much. And I've come to pour my praise on him like oil from Mary's alabaster box. Please don't be angry if I wash his feet with my tears and dry them with my hair. My hair, see you weren't there. The night he found me, you did not feel what I felt when he wrapped his loving arms around me. And do you know the cost of this oil? the cost of the oil in my alabaster box. Dean Hempton, members of the faculty, honored guests, alumni and alumni, members of the class of 2016, families and friends, I would just like to admit defeat before I begin. Dean Hempton managed to smuggle in his own commencement address <laughs> while disparaging the very genre of all commencement addresses. Rhetorically awesome, and so HDS. So this is my footnote to his address, and definitely Chicago style. I am grateful for this honor. It is a remarkable thing to look out from this high pulpit at your faces, the graduating classes of MDiv, MTS, THM, and THD candidates at Harvard Divinity School and those of the staff who every day work tirelessly to support us. It is also moving to be able to see behind and above and surrounding all of you, your friends and family, revealed at last. Welcome, friends and family. 
and welcome ancestors for whom we have never lost connection. They are the great cloud of witnesses, these ones who surround you, the tribes whence you came, who up until today have remained mostly invisible as we undertook our work together in ethical reasoning and Hebrew Bible and the Gospel of Mary and early Christian mysticism, second year Sanskrit, the Tirumayvoli, the Buddhist compassionate care of the dying, and the histories of racism and the politics of sexuality. And of course, the wildly over-enrolled ancient Greek athletic sanctuaries. <laughs> the French socialist Charles-Pierre Peguet, who later in his life unhappily became a Roman Catholic in 1909, said, everything begins in mysticism and ends in politics. Peguet would have been perfect for HDS, what we call a seeker, thoughtful, evolving, eccentric, restless. And having had the privilege of teaching here for almost 25 years, I might answer, Peguet, that everything also begins in politics and ends in mysticism. What is it like to teach there, I'm sometimes asked. I usually answer wearily or humorously, depending on the day. God bless them, they're all trying to save the world. <laughs> How weird and wonderful to see you world savers today. And tomorrow, not as independent, self-actualizing graduate students, but instead as tenderly encumbered, trailed by your nearest and dearest, your matrix. Today, your tribes dwell not only in your thoughts as you toil far away in Cambridge, but now out in plain sight, like dreams suddenly manifest in the waking world, loving you, annoying you, photographing the life out of you, and sometimes anxiously asking us, behind your backs or maybe right in front of you, what on earth will she do with a divinity degree? <laughs> Especially in this economy. This week, just when you seriously need them to behave, smile, keep quiet, and keep their opinions to themselves, family and friends will have an irrepressible way of not. <laughs> we faculty have been listening to the anxiety for weeks now. My grandmother's coming from Albuquerque, she insisted, but no one knows her real age. I hope she doesn't collapse. A friend told me that no one is supposed to applaud until everyone gets their diploma, but my whole family's coming from Nairobi and they're bringing cowbells to ring when I get mine. <laughs> And we are not talking silver jingle bells. These are going to drown out everything. My parents gave their two tercentenary theater tickets to my fifth grade teacher and her husband because she said I was smart, even though I mostly just goofed off. My dad is a Vietnam vet with PTSD, so he'll be checking the perimeter all day. That's what he does. I'm just hoping he doesn't freak out the Harvard police. My father can't come because my brother overdosed last month. He just got out of rehab and he has to drive him to meetings every day. My mother won't be here because she's jealous of anything I achieve. My parents are both coming, but they haven't seen each other or even been in the same room and since I was 12. No, I mean literally in the same room, literally. And we faculty kindly don't say, don't say so you didn't mean metaphorically in the same room. And every year, as graduation nears, we hear more than one person say, my family would love to come. They can't afford it, but they're really proud of me. No one in my family even went to college. You've spent years in training to become scholars and ministers, to become activists, to become writers, to become literate in what has always been one of the oldest and most persistent realms of human experience, 
the one that calls the shots for all the rest of them. There is no chronic injustice or pernicious evil in this world that can be solved without understanding the profound role that religion, culture, and ideology, intertwining as they do, play in its action. And after HDS, I would be willing to say that there are few problems that any of you will face with anything other than a self-aware and self-critical attitude, a way that does not polarize or oversimplify or reduce the views of others to ignorant bromides. And when others interrogate or reject your thinking, however you engage them, I also know that you will not need a placemat to tell you how to answer, because you will ask them to tell you why they think that, and you will listen. That is the beginning of a real conversation. 2016 is a special year for Harvard Divinity School. It is our bicentennial, the 200th anniversary of the founding of the first non-denominational seminary in the United States. The election of the Unitarian Henry Ware to the Hollis Professorship of Divinity in 1805 broke the dominant grip of Orthodox Calvinist theology at Harvard, the legacy of its Puritan days. Harvard College overseer Jedediah Morse led an exodus of disaffected Calvinist theologians to found Andover Theological Seminary in protest. In 1838, in the beautiful small antique chapel on the third floor of Divinity Hall that you can visit this afternoon, HDS alumnus Ralph Waldo Emerson delivered a commencement address on a sweltering July evening, even hotter than today, true, that indicted the failures of what he called historical Christianity and exhorted the graduating class to, quote, cast behind you all conformity and equate men at first hand with deity. A deity to be found as much in the natural world, in dreams, and the communion of one's own soul as in scripture. Emerson's speech drew the ire of theologians and the press alike who called it utterly distasteful. HDS has been widening the non-denominational circle ever since, which at its founding meant different kinds of Protestantism and now means many kinds of religious traditions, including paganism, humanism, and atheism. Like a bumblebee, we definitely should not be able to fly. Our school has been embracing, refining, rejecting theologies and methodologies ever since, pushing at the fetters of social and religious convention, including the fetters of the real enslavement of fellow human beings and the theologies that supported it. We continue to feel the pain of how very far we have to go to become truly a diverse community, not only in our racial, religious, and sexual identities, but also in our points of view. In saving the world, we do not want to become an echo chamber. On August 31st last year, Harvey Cox offered a convocation address in honor of his half century of teaching at Harvard and the coming bicentennial, noting that HDS was born in trouble has often created trouble for Harvard University at the center, and needs to continue to be troublemakers in the outside world as it fractures and oppresses itself. Theology, he said, by its very nature is or should be troublesome. Theologians, ministers, and scholars of religion, that's all of you, are not excellent sheep. This past December, as the calendar stood poised at the start of 2016, the bicentennial year of Harvard Divinity School, a young Filipino man, one of my students from the Extension School, came to see me in my Dumbledore office. It is a Dumbledore office because Andover Newton Theological Seminary, the same one that represented the original dissenting group of theologians, 
left the campus of Phillips Academy in Andover and purchased land from Harvard on which they built Andover Hall, a neo-medieval building in an architectural style, style called Collegiate Gothic, a 19th century style deliberately evocative of medieval Christian beliefs and unexpected archaic ornamentation, neo-orthodox buildings with battlements, leaded glass windows, esoteric symbols, and heads of saints, green men, and philosophers. When Andover Newton exiled itself from this building, unlike any other at Harvard, HDS, who had shared the building with our former detractors, took it over. Even in our main building, we dwell in a world of mixed eccentric heritage. My Filipino student, Reynaldo, told me, it was hard to find your office. I had a lot to ask a lot of different people all over campus. Everyone was kind to me. Everyone is so kind here. And I've been thinking about this ever since. Now, kind is not the first word that pops up in my mind when I think of any part of Harvard. <laughs> but this was his first encounter with our school. And despite all our flaws and struggles, this newcomer found HDS kind. This is something to be proud of, something to continue to aspire to while we are saving the world in synagogues, hospitals, prisons, mosques, NGOs, while we are including the excluded into our theorizing, while we are rewriting the histories. Kindness is so often dismissed as the anemic, saccharine twin of its more robust siblings in the terminology of world religions, compassion in Buddhism, mercy in Judaism and Islam, love in Christianity. Worse, kindness is often seen as a cowardly way to duck agonizing ethical dilemmas that involve a surrender of power, privilege, or capital, of systematic violence against female, brown, child, or gay and transgender bodies, as a way to hack the gnarly challenge of injustice while racking up gold stars for being nice. But kindness is not niceness. It is instead a powerful and subversive thing. It is something that anyone can practice even if she cannot bring herself to feel compassion or mercy or love. His Holiness the Dalai Lama has said many times, my religion is very simple. My religion is kindness. Addressing a conference on family in Rome in 2013, His Holiness Pope Francis did not push away a little boy about four years old who ran onto the stage and sat on his chair and hugged the pontiff's robes, even as cardinals tried to bribe him back with candy. But instead, the Holy Father tenderly rested his hand on the top of the little boy's head for the rest of his remarks. When my husband Bruce was a very young boy about the same age, visiting his grandmother, who still lived in her Depression-era home in rural Ahaski, North Carolina, he kept going in and out of the house onto the porch, slamming the screen door. Bruce's grandmother, also named Bruce, said to him, Bruce, if you slam that door one more time, I'm gonna wear you out. Of course, little Bruce did, and she picked him up and laid him across her knee. He twisted around and looked up at her and said, Grandma, the Bible says, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Astonished, she stopped. Lord, she said, I have never heard a child quote scripture against me. As a first-year MDiv at HDS, a thousand miles from home and dealing with his required class in meaning-making, my husband walked into an administrative office and asked if he could borrow a gym clip. The administrator mocked his southern accent and said he could have one if he called it by its right name, paperclip. Bruce, on that day, determined to kill his southern accent, and it has stayed killed to this day. 
Let us try never again to be that school, sacrificing kindness in the face of difference. Let us instead be the school that Rinaldo found when he came, the school in which I teach where one day, when after years of advocating for Muslims in the academic and public sphere, I looked up at the fifth meeting of a class I was co-teaching and called one of the two hijab-wearing students by the name of the other one, twice when she did not respond because it was not her name. I apologized immediately and profusely, but nothing could remedy the shame I felt. When I myself climbed the steep stairs to my Dumbledore office, there was the young woman whose name I had wrongly used. I cringed, waiting for the polite but well-deserved rebuke from her. I began to apologize again. She interrupted me. Please, Professor Patton, I'm not angry, and neither is Amira. I could see how upset you were. So I came to make sure you were okay. The Arab-American poet Naomi Shahib Nye wrote her iconic poem, Kindness, when she was stranded alone in a remote village in Colombia in 1978, when the bus on which she was traveling was attacked and one of her fellow passengers, an indigenous man, was murdered and left by the side of the road. With only the clothes on her back and her rudimentary Spanish, she was adopted by a street gang who protected her and fed her rolls for days until she was reunited with her husband. And she wrote this. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is you I have been looking for and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Now, etymologies make humanities scholars suspicious, as genetics worries social and physical scientists. Both can be twisted towards supremacist ends and have been. But even Derrida used etymology as a tool of philosophy. The deep history of the word kind, which means friendly or deliberately doing good to others, opens up to a place of mystery. It comes from the Middle English kinde, which in turn comes from the Old English gekinde, natural, native, innate, originally meaning with the feeling of relatives for one another. It has the same root as, kin as kinship. So, can only relatives be kind to one another? Can only like-minded people treat each other tenderly and sacrificially? This is the way the world seems to feel today. Religious traditions, clans, and classes coalesce. Political parties draw in the wagons, protecting their own, often while condemning their counterparts, or even politicizing kindness itself. 
The astonishing news, though, from human genetics is that all human beings living today descend in an unbroken line from one common matrilineal ancestor who lived between 100 and 200,000 years ago, almost certainly in East Africa, in what is today Ethiopia. She is called mitochondrial Eve. The multi-regional hypothesis turned out to be wrong. She was not the only woman on Earth at the time when she lived, but she was the grandmother of all Homo sapiens sapiens. There is no one in this chapel or any place in the world who is not our cousin. How would such a view change us from the inside out? Why can we speak fairly of our relationship to our grandmother from Albuquerque in terms of identity politics, but not in terms of our grandmother from Ethiopia? Why do two generations define us, define us and thousands of generations can be dismissed as a romantic concept that does not? May all of us leave this beautiful chapel, not as those who tolerate one another like doses of poison, but as relatives, however unruly. Let us give up, in the words of Jane Bennett, the futile attempt to disentangle ourselves from one another. Let us surrender ideas of profiling, of hatred, and even when we differ to the point of breaking, to the point where we can only say with Tevye, no, there is no other hand, let us nevertheless practice kindness, the gateway to compassion, the gateway to justice. Even when there is no other hand, there is still our heart, set in motion when we were conceived, beating throughout our days without any help from us, the heart we all inherited from our Ethiopian grandmother, who does not want us to destroy one another or this beautiful earth we have inherited. She is not a distant relative. She is here and in this place where the living meet the dead. As the Senegalese poet Ismael Birago Diop wrote, les morts ne sont pas morts, the dead are not dead. They're in the hut, in the crowd, the dead are not dead. The dead are never gone. They're in the breast of a woman, they're in the crying child, in the flaming firebrand. Let no one who's graduating today without their family present feel that they are completely alone. Your family is here. We are all around you. Kind comes from kin. We are all kin. This changes nothing, but it also changes everything. It is a radical notion that troubles and queers every division our species insists on creating and so savagely patrolling. We have the same grandmother, Setiyet, Bibi, Babi, Jede, Nona, Lola, Omi, Obachan, Yaya, Tutu, Softa, Abuela, Hamuni, Avo, Bati, Gi. Dear Harvard Divinity School class of 2016, the only one to bear on your diplomas the year of the 200th anniversary of your school, your majestic, brave, eccentric, and restless school. Know how much we who will remain here will miss each of you. May you rejoice in all you have accomplished and in the ways you have been changed. Even when the world in its cruelty afflicts your hearts or you are lost in self-doubt, frustration, or despair, may you remember to be kind one to another, 
and especially to yourselves. In the words of the Dalai Lama, be kind whenever possible. It is always possible. May God, creator of the intertwined, bless you all.
Carl Sagan, on viewing a distant photograph of Earth from space, wrote, look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every key creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust, suspended in a sunbeam. The Earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph, they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The Earth is the only world we've known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yes. Settle? Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the Earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish that pale blue dot, the only home we've known. In this passage, Headmaster Albus Dumbledore eulogizes Cedric Diggory, a student at his school who has been murdered by the newly resurgent Lord Voldemort. There is much that I would like to say to you all tonight, but I must first acknowledge the loss of a very fine person who should be sitting here, enjoying our feast with us. I would like you all please to stand and raise your glass to Cedric Diggory. Cedric was a person who exemplified many of the qualities that distinguish Hufflepuff House. He was a good and loyal friend, a hard worker. He valued fair play. His death has affected you all, whether you knew him well or not. Every guest in this hall will be welcomed back here any time, should they wish to come. 
And I say to you all once again, in the light of Lord Voldemort's return, we are only as strong as we are united, as weak as we are divided. Lord Voldemort's gift for spreading discord and enmity is very great. We can fight it only by showing an equally strong bond of friendship and trust. Differences of habit and language are nothing at all if our aims are identical and our hearts are open. It is my belief, and never have I hoped so that I am mistaken, that we are all facing dark and difficult times. Some of you in this hall have already suffered directly at the hands of Lord Voldemort. Many of your families have been torn asunder, and a week ago, a student was taken from our midst. Remember, Cedric. Remember if the time should come when you have to make a choice between what is right and what is easy. Remember what happened to a boy who was good and kind and brave because he strayed across the path of Lord Voldemort. Remember, Cedric Diggory. Om Sangachadvam Samvadadvam Samvo Manamsi Janatam Deva Bhagam Yathapurve Sanjanana Upasate Samano Mantraha Samitihi Samani Samanam Manaha Sahachitta Mesham Samanam mantram abhimantraye vaha Samanena vo havisha juhomi Samani va akutihi Samana hridayani vaha Samanamastu vo mano Yatha vaha susahasati Om shanti shanti shantihi Iti purvam rigvede proktam idanim harvard deva vidyalaya anushtitam asya sarva dharma dharmopadeshasya vidya vishve sarvatra vyapnuyat iti mama prarthana om shri guru namaha harihi om we come together for a common purpose our minds united in the quest for higher wisdom. Common our prayer, common our goal, common our purpose, common our ideal. United our hearts, united our intentions. Perfect the harmony and unity among us. Om, peace, peace and peace. Said this, in Rigveda, now enacted at Harvard Divinity School, may this multi-religious education spread across the globe, we pray. Salutations to all our teachers, thanks to him, her or it that is guiding us. Om. Holy One, who has given us the breath of life, today we remember to breathe deeply, to rest, to take in, to pause before we act. 
and then to take in another deep breath poised on the edge and risk jumping in, risk taking action, risk speaking up, risk using the gifts we have been given so that at the end of our life we can say with absolute clarity that no part of our existence was wasted in fear of failure or fear of success. Hold us. Prepare us the way to begin to offer the gift of our awakened presence, full of love and light today. These and the prayers of our hearts we lift up now in the silence. Amen. All that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. God is neither good nor evil, neither loving nor hating. God, God is power. God is change. We must find the rest of what we need within ourselves.
May the Eternal bless you and protect you. May it, May it be, be so. so. May the Eternal's face give light to you and show you favor. May, May it, it be, be so. so. May the Eternal's face be lifted toward you and give you peace. May, May it, it be, be so. so.